0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Keep your options open um,
1: and look for those opportunities, put yourself in situations where you have many, many diverse opportunities to say yes to.
0: Today I'm talking to Andy Worrell. Andy is currently the Integrated Fuel Cycle Section Head in the Nuclear Energy and Fuel Cycle Division at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and also the Deputy Director of the Gateway for Accelerated Innovation in Nuclear, the GAIN Program, which is a US Department of Energy Office of Nuclear Energy initiative. Andrew has over 25 years of professional experience, both in the UK and the US, working on and leading multidisciplinary and multinational projects in the fields of reactor physics. He lives in Knoxville, just north of the Smoky Mountains, about two hours east of Nashville. Welcome, Andy. It's great to see you
1: thanks Andrew thanks for having me and uh, yeah just to be clear as you can tell by my accent I'm not originally from Knoxville Tennessee or the area I'm I'm from east 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 Tennessee as you can tell
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes yes with a bit of water in between absolutely yeah so you did you grew up in Wolverhampton Uh, you went to Bingley Junior School and Highfield Secondary School tell us about your family and what you were like as a kid
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, it's a long way back uh, back to Wolverhampton in those days, both in in time and space. But uh, yeah, growing up as a kid, it was very much traditional um, inner city, Wolverhampton, being brought up in a very multicultural kind of society. Um, Parents uh, brought both, you know, working class, uh, two sisters living with my grandmother in a little uh, kind of terrace house in Wolverhampton. And um, so you know, being brought up as a, as a kid just playing on the streets and walking to school and cycling to school kind of was was the norm. But uh, it's 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 certainly interesting how um, far I've come. You know, as I said, in in time and space since then. And looking back, it's uh, it's been a great journey.
0: What were the things that you really enjoyed at school? I, I always enjoyed kind of anything that had a bit of a
1: challenge to it you know kind of and it was it's obvious kind of a classic stereotype thing to say but I always enjoyed taking things apart and fixing things but it was it wasn't so much that it was understanding how things worked and why they worked in the way that they did and so I think you know naturally going into a a technical field was was always predestined I think if I'd done anything different it would have been quite odd um but I was always very interested in um more kind of technology than theoretical physics. so It was more, more the application of things, but I was always a devil at school. I always wanted to know, why am I learning this? And particularly I remember at university thinking and asking the, the, the professors and the lecturers, why am I learning this? Am I learning this just because I need to know it to pass the exam? Or are you telling me this because I might use it usefully in the future? And I remember that being a theme both through O levels, A levels, and certainly at degree level. Um, particularly when you know kind of get into the nuclear field it's like well I'm not I don't want to learn this just for the sake of it tell me something I can use in the future that's what I want to know.
0: So then at school you you, you did your A-levels which were the sort of math, physics chemistry which is exactly what I did and, and my motivation was keep your options open was that the same for you? It was indeed yeah I think back then and again that was
1: something I would always say to people now and I think and it's certainly a, a theme through my career I think is I've always liked to keep my options open because certainly back then Again, you know, inner city Wolverhampton. Parents were working class. Didn't none of my parents went. None of my parents or family went to university. That side of the family at that time went to university. So it was never quite clear what path I was going to take. So I was thinking, well, I don't want to specialize and go down a path that I don't like. Let me see what I can do just to keep these things open for as long as possible. And obviously, as I said, I knew very early on that it was a technical field that I was interested in. But I remember again possibly a theme that through your podcast and through certainly my career is having somebody give you some very good worldly advice along the way. I wouldn't necessarily say it's always a mentor because sometimes it can be a professor or a teacher, but in many ways, they are also your mentor. Um, And it was my physics teachers back then were just very inspirational. They, they were good people. I always enjoyed hanging out with them. They were kind of like-minded people, P- possibly because they enjoyed cricket too, but maybe, maybe there's more to it than just a cricket. Um, but they they would always sit you down and be willing to explain something to you and you know, in, encourage you to do something out of the ordinary. So the way my interest started really at that point was there was something that the school had called a versatile laboratory aid. It was a Vela, V-E-L-A. And it was something that Leeds University were developing, one of the professors. and My school physics teacher had got his hands on this thing. um, And I'd seen it used in the class, just doing O-level physics and thinking, well, what the heck's this? How can I use this and play with it a bit more? So again, applying something from the classroom. Um, And this would have been around 1986 when Chernobyl happened. Um, and so there was all this concern and question as to what, how much radiation was coming over from, from, you know, from um, Russia and from, from the East, Eastern Europe. Uh, and so we set up, because uh, I was interested in it, the teacher and I set up this experiment where we, we set up this vailer, and it was basically just a data recording device that could record things over short or long term. So we recorded the background radiation over many days as the, as the cloud drifted over. Uh, and again in, in the Midlands it didn't get too bad it was it wasn't quite it wasn't quite uh, that that catastrophic but again it's quite fascinating just to be asked to be involved in that and then seeing something from the classroom actually have an application to the real world you see and again that inspired me to get into oh that's why I'm learning about this so again there's a quite an interesting theme there.
0: Now you were saying before that you were the first one in your family to go to university so Presumably, I don't know what the expectations were on you from home, but you were telling me earlier about your mates and what they were doing at this point in terms of applying to university. So just talk us through what happened then. Yeah, again, it's quite fascinating that I think, again, back to, um, excuse me,
1: back to, um, you know, back to original days of, of school and family, that parents never sat me down and said, right, you must go and do this. But one thing they always did was said, you can only ever do the best that you can do try your best, do your best, that's all we'd ever expect. Uh, and if you enjoy doing it and it makes you happy, then that's all we can ever ask. And so that was the kind of um, motivator. I was you know, always getting involved, whatever I enjoyed. And so hanging around with my buddies, you know, the, the, the guys in the physics classes and the math classes and chemistry classes, I then noticed they were all filling in these forms that I, I hadn't ever seen before. And for people old enough would remember the uh, Ucker and PCAS forms, so those were the polytechnics and university forms. And so I just remember sitting in, in the classroom one time, seeing them filling in these forms and asking, well, what are you doing? Oh, we're, we're applying to university and asking the question, well, do you think I should do that? Oh yeah, aren't you doing that? And of course the back the backstory was that their parents had gone to university. So they understood the timing and the importance of filling out this these paperwork. I hadn't got a clue. So I, I just asked my uh, teachers, you know, my physics teachers, do you think I could go to university or should go to university? You know, yeah, of course you should. Here's the forms. And then they would help me apply. And, and kind of the rest is history in, in a sense. Um, but uh, but again, I would have never otherwise have, uh, have thought about doing it. And again, it's just taking those opportunities when they arise, I think is probably another theme throughout my career is when an opportunity arises, if you, if you can, then
0: take it. But what do you think you sort of learned about yourself during that time at Lancaster in terms of what you enjoyed, what you were good at, what motivated you, those sorts of things?
1: Yeah, I think certainly, again, it did underline the fact that I really enjoyed applied Thing. So I studied applied physics at Lancaster. Actually, it was applied physics with electronics. So like Electronics was kind of a minor, I would say. Um, but it was really interesting. In your first year at Lancaster, you had to do the physics, of course, and you had to do the maths courses to go and support the physics. But you got to choose your third um, subject. And I chose engineering. Um, and so I remember spending a lot of time in the engineering building, um, you know, building things, you know, actually learning welding, which was fascinating to me, uh, and making like little bridges and doing destructive testing of uh, of bridges and components and, and learning all the equations that went behind kind of engineering side. So, so I think to me at that point, it really underlined for me career-wise Again, I chose, I chose in the right field that physics and the application of that was really important. It, it underlined further to me that kind of applying it in the real world in an engineering kind of sense, in a technological sense rather than the pure physics sense was, uh, was the right thing.
0: And so you, you then decided to do the nuclear masters at Birmingham. So what took you into the nuclear well, where was the interest for that? Was that the experiments you'd done at school with the with the cloud coming over from Chernobyl? Or what was it?
1: Well, actually, it's 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 the same period of time, it was actually bizarrely, O-level geography got me into nuclear, the fascination with nuclear. And the reason being was that O-level geography, we had to do again a project. So this is something that quite fascinates me now, is that I don't know how many um GCSE or A-level um opportunities where you really get to do projects. And again, back to the application of what I'm learning. So the, the O-Level Geography project was about evaluating, and I got to choose this. It was evaluating the impact, the pros and cons of different energy forms in North Wales. It's a very random topic, it seems. But the reason I chose it was because I was amazed to see just how diverse the energy forms were in North Wales. So you had uh, Dinorwic, the pump storage power station, which was just fascinating to me again that was my father he used to work for Macalpines and they were the one and they they um built the Norwick so that's why my interest first started with that then you had transfer just down the road the old magnox station uh then there was the alternative energy uh, uh center at Mcuntleth which was just up the road there again uh, and there was just so many different kind of energy forms so my geography teacher had spent a weekend or at least one day of over a weekend and drove me around all these places and um, just me on my own because he was fascinated too and I just took all this information and then wrote it up and the answer was the most beneficial of all was nuclear uh, and so that, and that's fun enough how then I <clears throat> when I went through my uh, undergrad in physics I was sitting in the library studying for my finals thinking oh this is just great but what am I going to do next I've actually got no idea what I'm going to do next and there was this kind of light bulb moment of and I remember it really clearly, just thinking, what am I going to do next? And like looking around, kind of scratching your head, kind of gazing. And, and I saw the, an advert for the master's course at Birmingham and suddenly thought, you know what? I love nuclear. It's great. Because I remember, you know, studying it back in the day, like you said, back to the, uh, the Chernobyl fallout thing. And so well, I've got a bit of background there. I saw the benefits of nuclear in North Wales. So let's let's study that a little bit a little bit further. Uh, and so let's go and do this, this physics and technology and nuclear reactors degree at uh, Birmingham. And of course, it was local back to home. So I kind of knew the area, too. So that's kind of a comfort feeling. I always knew I was going back home at that point.
0: Oh, that's really good. That's really good. Um, And so you you were telling me before, when you were doing the the, the Birmingham Masters, you had an industrial placement uh, that was actually with with BNFL. So just tell us how how did that work? You know, were you did you have a series of lectures? Was the industrial placement part of the project or or how did it work and what were you doing?
1: Yeah, so how it worked was you you studied pretty much solidly your usual lectures and lab things from like October through to June, and then you sat your kind of finals in, in a June kind of period. <clears throat> and then from June through till the October, so it was about 60% lectures and then 40% pretty much of the course was all about an industrial placement. So... Back then, uh, and it's interesting how things have changed, but that, that master's from Birmingham was the, lo- the oldest, you know, nuclear masters in the country. And I think, well, I guess it still remains as such a uh, phenomenal course. But the number of people who went through it back when I did, it was only, I think it was 12 people on the course. So now I think they're in tens of, there's tens of people on that course now. But when I did it, it was very easy to, because it was such the only masters in the UK at the time, imagine doing nuclear, very applied incredible reputation. So industry really wanted to use that as a, as a skills pipeline, you know, and it was, it was, the, it was the epitome of the, the skills pipeline for the UK for many, many years. Um, so what we did was you were given a list of projects that the industry wanted um, and you, you applied and said, well, this kind of thing interests me. Uh, and the one that I was really interested in back to the, uh, you know, the codes and understanding, you know, that kind of stuff was um, was fuel and core design. Um, and looking at uh, advanced fuel designs for for British nuclear fuels, MOX fuels, um, and so you would then spend, and I spent four, I guess it's four months or so in uh, up in Preston in Lancashire uh, to, uh, at the Springfield's works, working in the office doing my masters, uh, you know, on on uh,
0: cord, fuel and core design.
1: You successfully
0: completed your masters, and then you 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 were offered a job at the NFL Springfield's laboratory. So. All of a sudden, I guess it's become serious because you're no longer a student; you're actually being paid for what you do. Um, how did did it make you feel different actually being at Springfield's as an employee?
1: Yeah, it did. I mean, I think again, it's back to that that realization, that kind of penny drop. That you know, previous to that, it would have been a, a few good decisions along the way, and and I think that's probably something throughout my career. If anybody asks me, you know, what, what have you done so well in your career, and it's I've had some made some lucky decisions and some informed decisions along the way. Um, but I think that was the, the time I realized for the first time, this is now my career, you know, back to this point of keeping all my options open. And I think it's one thing I would definitely say to anybody doing nuclear, if you've done a nuclear engineering discipline, like I chose, you know, physics, and then I moved into you know, nuclear engineering and the physics and technology of nuclear reactors sounds quite specific but in reality it's far from specific and i would you know even back then working for a company as large as british nuclear fuels limited it made me realize that there are so many opportunities to apply my skill set and again i would encourage anybody to keep your options open as long as possible particularly as early career professionals because if you choose nuclear engineering does that mean i want to do experimental work or do i want to do modeling and simulation do I want to operate a reactor or a fuel cycle facility, or do I want to work in a laboratory doing, you know, kind of nano or nanomaterials for, for material science, safeguards and security? The list goes on and on and on and on. And so even then, I was still trying to keep my options open, but I realized this is it now. I've chosen a path, I'm in nuclear. Um, you know, and again, the, the fact that how British Nuclear Fuels Limited was so large, it did enable a lot of future opportunities. And that, that was the exciting part to me
0: then. It was like
1: this this tremendous first step. And oh, my goodness, I've just started the journey.
0: Yes. And when you were, so you were there, you were doing uh, fuel and core design and, and sort of modeling codes, um, which in one sense, you think, takes you away from the sort of practical hands on side of things. But of course, there are the laboratory facilities. At Springfield. So, how did, was there any sort of link in, between what you were doing and sort of designing and what they were doing in the laboratories? And did you interact with that at all?
1: Yeah, that that's a fascinating question. So, I think this is something for me that's been really important, and I, and I would underline this continually now is the importance of how labs and fundamental science and and that kind of you know kind of let's say a highbrow kind of applied uh, a highbrow kind of science is so important to the application of something. Uh, and again, it's something that has, has been so important for old British Nuclear Fuels Limited, you see how the national labs can really underpin the industry today. And it was even the same back then is that I would be sitting in my office doing fuel and core design and, you know, sitting quite happily running co- code optimizations and whatever and coming up with wonderful things. And then I'd walk over just literally down the road at Springfield into the fuel fabrication facility. So then it's not a lab. This is now an industrial sized facility. Several hundred tons of fuel being produced for the advanced gas coal reactors and the and BNFL's you know, pressurized water reactor fuel for size well B. Um, and you walk in and you suddenly realize, oh, my goodness, these calculations I'm doing are actually really important because it's not now on a code. It's not now on a computer. It's now fuel that's being fabricated. And so for me, it was that realization and seeing the fuel and core design that I was part of a team. It wasn't just on my own, but the team that I was part of, we were producing, we were producing fuel designs that were being manufactured. And then those guys would see that fuel loaded into size well B. You know, they would be there in the control room when you started the reactor up and they would be looking at your calculations and saying, you know, well, you said the critical boron concentration will be X, let's see if it really is X. And then you see the number going up and the, the, the realization, and, and again, it's something I would tell everybody, that moment of um, seeing something that you're doing in the real world, it's such, it, it makes sure you focus and concentrate next time you're doing that calculation. And, you make, and why the people who hate quality assurance and quality control, You only need to see it in the real world to say, oh, my goodness, please check this calculation. Please make sure I've not made a mistake because it's vital.
0: So it it looks like that during that time you were sort of developing your technical capability. You became a senior technical manager. And then after some time, you started to become uh, more of a team manager. So you, I guess, transitioning a little bit slightly away from doing the hands-on modelling work and, and and all of that into managing a team of people who were doing that sort of thing. How did you find that transition? It, it's, it's an interesting point that throughout that
1: transition, I, if you'd have asked me, what do I want to do? Do I want to be technical or manager? I would have definitely said technical. Um, I, and I wouldn't have never said no to managerial. But what was really interesting is, and again, this is probably a theme for us all to bear in mind, is that I think an organic growth throughout a career is really important. <clears throat> I hate, and again, this is, not an, and there's multiple stories behind these that uh, some people may be aware of, people who know me, but I was never a fan of these personal assistants being accelerated to be a personal assistant, the CEO, or, you know, somebody senior in the, in the organization. I was always very keen on people walking the beat, you know, sharpening their teeth, you know, at the, at the cold face, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use, you know, mixing my metaphors continually through that. But I was always a big fan of really finding a foundation in a technical area such that you got credibility and respect from whoever, whether it was a team you were working as part of or a manager or a customer or wherever it might be. So I, I never wanted to accelerate too quickly. To so the point of that background to it was when I was given the opportunity to be a team lead, it was, an, it was a natural organic growth because the team I was there managing with the people I'd worked with for quite some time prior to that. So in many ways you could argue, well, that should be easier because you knew the discipline, I knew the people. But knowing the people and managing the people, it, it's a tricky because one day they're your best buddies, the next day you're responsible for their career. Uh, and disciplinary things. I mean, thank goodness we never had any of those. But you know, you, you never quite know. But the other thing as well, I would say that the what the one thing that gave me confidence was the people around me, the senior managers who chose me and gave me that opportunity to be a team lead, had confidence in me and mentored me, and were the you know, crutch if ever I needed to lean on somebody for advice or support. They were always there.
0: So at this point, I'm just sort of moving forward a little bit and you became technical authority for fuels and reactors. So you're involved in a lot of important initiatives in the UK Um, and then you move to the US. So just talk us through what you were doing before, how this opportunity arose and why you decided to make a really big move, you know, away from where you've, you've been from your master's. A number of years developing your career and all of a sudden you move to Oakridge.
1: Yeah. So I think again, back to this, there's been quite a natural organic growth throughout my career. You know, I'd managed a smaller team of like half a dozen people in a discipline that I knew. Then I was given a much larger team. So I had 30 people across three different sites for BNFL um, the team then was called Advanced Reactors and Instrumentation. The instrumentation had nothing to do with advanced reactors. It was instrumentation of the fuel cycle facilities, but it was just they needed somebody to manage a group of people, so they were all thrown together. So, but, uh, so I'd gone through all these other things like technical leadership and so on. And um, then the UK National Lab was established, NNL was established, and I was part of the laboratory leadership team for that, um, which, which is when I was the uh, technical authority for reactors and fuels. So all of those things have kind of been organic, organic and kind of grown, but I couldn't see where I was going next. And so I kind of felt I did everything I could. Um, and to be honest, back then it was really frustrating. The National Lab had been established. It was kind of in this phase of not quite knowing, um, you know, where it, fit, where it fit in terms of its, its role and so on. The, the, the government weren't very clear in terms of the funding for the National Lab or, or its remit or indeed in for new build. Um, There've been a lot of changes in kind of policy back, flip-flopping back and forth. And I was thinking, well, this is great. I could sit here for a long while, but I feel like I just need to do something different. And at that time, as part of the technical authority for the for the National Lab, I was doing a lot of work with the European Union, advising like the European Commission on, on their, their various calls, working with the US government, the DOE, on a whole range of programs. And I was finding that I would go to all these international meetings with some great ideas and some great people I was working with. And they, they'd say, oh, great. Thanks, Andy, for all those ideas. We'll take that on board. And that would develop a new program in the US. Then I'd come back to the UK and say, hey, I had this great idea. And they'd say, oh, we've, no, we've got no funding. So, you know, so it, it becomes incredibly frustrating. i I say to people, you know, you bang your head against a brick wall just long enough that the blood's got into your eyes and that's the time to stop. So so, so I'd kind of got to that point where the blood got into my eyes, I guess. And I decided, you know, it's time for a change. Uh, and so, kind of partly because of some personal circumstances and so on, I thought, well, no, it's time, it's time for a change. Um, let's go and do it. Um, and it was the time actually where NNL was managed by uh, by Battelle, uh, and so I'd kind of got links back through Battelle because Oakridge. Uh, national labs also managed by Battelle, and so I, I'd got links because of that. I'd also got links because of some international programs. I'd actually worked at Oak Ridge, um, not for the national lab, but I worked on weapons plutonium disposition back in 1999. On a large, so I spent several months here. So I knew the people, I knew the the environment i had been working into. Uh, I knew how good the programs were because i had been part of them from the UK back into the US, like uh, the Global Nuclear Energy Partnerships, (GNEP) and all those kind of and the Gen Four International Forum things like that. So it wasn't as though it was so scary that it was a step into the unknown, but I just felt I needed a new challenge and
0: a clean break from all the frustrations from the UK. And and how did you find the sort of cultural change? Because in one sense, you know, we all speak English, we're all doing nuclear research on the same materials. The facilities are different, but you're in a different country and in a different organisation. So it must have been, uh, you know, something to cope with. It was.
1: I mean, I think, again, different people are, are being referenced with the quote of two, you know, two great nations separated by one common language. I think Churchill and Bernard, Bernard Shaw were too. But I think the, the point is, is that there's um, there's a lot of cultural differences. And funnily enough, back in the days of British Nuclear Fuels Limited, I actually did a two-day course called Working Effectively with Americans which was an absolute eye-opener for me. This is before I moved over to, um, to work on this, this weapons plutonium program. And so there were so many cultural differences that I'd been made aware of because of that. But even then, that's just a drop in the ocean. When I came over to the US, um, you know, people would obviously say things like you know, language, where you say lift, I say elevator, you say tomato, I say tomato. Well, that's just scratching the surface. There are so many different cultural differences. Um, so I think for me the approach was, and again back to the point of kind of being sensitive to cultural differences, back to my you know diversity diverse upbringing, but also being sensitive to people and being able to read people. I knew that I couldn't come over and just be Andy from the UK. I have to establish myself, and that to me was <clears throat> one of the very key important realizations is that my reputation in the UK actually now meant nothing now. I was in the US. I now had to, I'd got the job based on my reputation, but now I had to restart my own reputation again. And so I, I said to my division director and the associate lab director, I said, for my first year here, I'm going to be relatively quiet for Andy but you need to know i'm doing that deliberately because i'm testing the waters i need to know what works what doesn't work just pushing boundaries in a certain way to make sure i'm not overstepping a mark but also i want to encourage and learn as i go not upset people from the you know from the get-go so that was the cultural shock that um i think the other one i would say is well most people don't realize the us is very hierarchical in its in its approaches i think J- Japan would be an example where most people say it's very hierarchical <clears throat> but the US is also like that so understanding you know line management is very important and knowing where you fit is is also very important so that, that that's some of the kind of takeaways I would say
0: and did you find and I'm presuming you did because you've been at being you know a- out there quite a while now but this this aspect of being yourself but in a different culture I mean it means you have to behave differently but you're still authentic to who you are
1: I agree. I think that being yourself is absolutely important. And again, back to the same consistency, being consistent with people, being fair, being respectful, all those kind of things. Um, The one thing that I think is, again, people will know this, but it's interesting how it manifests itself in a working environment. And that's the understanding of humor, sarcasm, irony, things like that. So in the UK, working with people for many, many years, people know me, knew my sense of humor. You know, again, the British of but there's certain things you can say to make your point. There are certain things I would say in the UK, like, um, you know, seize the nettle or, you know, you've got to figure this out when it's seize nettle. I've said that things like that in the US meetings and people looked at me and said, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? There's no, there's no, there's no idea. But so you, those things are different. But to be yourself is, is vital. Um, and again, but it's interesting how core values are still the same. I think across all of society, you know, honesty, decency, respect, uh, being sensitive to people. It is still key. That that, that's not changed. You know, even thousands of miles apart.
0: No, that's really good. So I'm going to take you back to this uh, this young guy doing this physics experiment, measuring background radiation, and and sort of just catching something that was you know exciting and you know could mean something to him. What would be if you could give yourself at that point in your life one piece of advice to set? you know, on a good track forward. What, what do you think that would one piece of advice would be? I,
1: I think it would be, and I've touched on it a couple of times, and, and that is keep your options open. And, and, you know, Andy, keep your options open throughout your life, which, which is what I've always done. Um, seize opportunities, but be, be happy and pleased to say no sometimes. I think we're all so keen to say yes to every opportunity before us. And, and I, I've said no to two or three opportunities throughout my career, and people would look at me and go, why the hell do you do that? But to me, I just knew it didn't fit. So I think being honest and true, know yourself is really important. Know what motivates you. Um, know what' your core values are I think is really important I mentioned before about I, I never like this idea of accelerating somebody's career just because they show potential I think they have to do it and you know walk the beat as I said so I think I think that that became really important to me my values never be affected there but be happy to say no to things be confident that you said no for good reasons but keep your options open um, and look for those opportunities, put yourself in situations where you have many, many diverse opportunities to say yes to, because I think that's the thing, is if you're exposed to many opportunities, and you put yourself in the right place, you can say no to the odd one, because you know that the next day or in a short period of time, there'll be another yes you can say yes to. I think if you're very, very constrained, you're fearful of saying no, because you think that's the only one opportunity you will ever get. So I think that, that's where it's been you, you're looking for me. And I would say, people looking back at me will probably call me over my career a generalist and and always would maybe others in the past would have criticized me for not taking on opportunities to become a specialist well my specialism my specialism is integration that that's what I would say like looking back then is you know be that integrator be that person who understands many different facets of the business understanding you know how the fuel cycle impacts the reactor how the reactor impacts the back end of the fuel cycle. More and more with advanced reactors, it's even more important than such a tight coupling. So I would, I would always say to people, keep your options open. Um, look for experience. I think applied experience has been key for me, whether it's my masters, all the things I've done with BNFL has been incredible. Um, and, and the things I've seen and done, I, you know, I, I, that's, that's what I would encourage anybody to do, get to see things and do things.
0: Mm. I'm really intrigued by what, about just by one thing you said there about, you know, when you have options, be true to your values. So I'm just thinking if somebody's listening to this podcast now and they've got an option in front of them and they're thinking to themselves, should I go for this or shouldn't I, how would you encourage them to think about that question? There's always a hearts and minds kind of thing, I think. To
1: these, is like you can list the pros and cons from a very kind of analytical perspective, and I think that that's that's certainly a great place to start. You can list the pros and cons, but ultimately you've got to listen to your gut. And and so I think for me, it's you know what what gets you up in the morning, what excites you to get out of bed, what excites you to go and find out that next result, and things like for me, like I said, it was it wasn't the research for the sake of research that motivated me. It was about making sure that this really was making a difference to an industry that I believed in to save money, make things safe and more efficient, that kind of thing. So I always thought that if I can make that difference, and I've always said my career was not about making decisions. It's about aiding the decision-making process. And so that's something that always motivated me throughout this was like, I knew that true to me was technical True to me was an application and making a difference, but, but equally it was like helping people make decisions about the big stuff, the big picture stuff that I just didn't have the full picture, but I can help in the areas I can. So I think don't be over analytical. P- people always say, well, listen to your heart. It's actually true all too often. If you do 50-50 in the pros and cons, then at that point, listen to your heart, listen to your stomach. Uh, they usually put you right, I think.
0: That's very good advice. Good, well, Andy, thanks so much for your time. This morning for you and this afternoon for me it's been great to chat to you
1: my pleasure thanks for the time and uh, good luck to everybody it's a great career stick with it it'll be worth it
0: if you've enjoyed this podcast to help others enjoy it too please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review thank you